Our New Testament reading is from Matthew chapter 3. I will read verses uh, 1 through 12. In those days, John the baptizer came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Jerusalem and all Judea and all the regions about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire, which will never be quenchable. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, for your uh, word, we give you thanks. For your son, we give you thanks. For the communion of the church, we give you thanks. For the presence of your Holy Spirit, here we give you thanks. All of these are gifts that we do not deserve. We are conscious of them, and we're grateful to you. We pray now that as we attend to your word, that uh, your Holy Spirit would be uh, alive and active uh, in each of our minds and our ears so that our ears would be open so that our hearts would be receptive i pray as well that your anointing would be upon me so that i can speak true and straight lord i pray that you would have your will and your way with us and i pray this in jesus name amen amen um just some information for for the body um uh Pat Seragian is still in the hospital. I guess this is her 11th day there. Uh, you can go see her. She's in Holy Redeemer. She's in the, uh, in the ICU. Jay Seragian is there pretty much nonstop. Okay, it was long, whenever the doors are open, they let him in. Uh, he's there. So uh, she is doing better. She is getting stronger. She is eating. She's getting restless and wants to get out of there. Uh, but I would encourage you to keep her in prayer, and stop by uh, and, and see her. Uh, Joan Clover is not in the sanctuary this morning. She's having pain uh, in her body. Uh, there, I'm not 
sure what the solution is there. Uh, her son Sam took her to the doctor a couple of days ago, and, and so she's feeling very uncomfortable, not feeling like herself. Um, so you might want to reach out to her and, and give a word to her as well. Linda Herwig uh, fell and broke her hip or her pelvis or something. She had surgery, came through it very well, um, uh, looks well, looks to be on the road to recovery, so pray for strength and, and for healing uh, for, for her as well. You may have heard uh, that my first grandchild was born this uh, past week. He, he's like way, way overdue, okay? So M- Mia, Mia uh, was my surprise 13 years ago. And, uh, you know, a late-in-life child is a wonderful gift uh, from God. And I was uh, so pleased by that gift that I kept praying for more gifts of the same sort. And uh, the Lord never saw fit to give me a, a fourth or a fifth child, but he has given me a grandchild. This child is an above-average child. He's very large. He's very large. He's nine pounds and nine ounces when he came out. He's very beautiful. Uh, his, his name is Sebastian Adamson Bruce and... Uh, Soon you'll you'll get to meet him and you get to hold him. We'll hand him around, uh, and you 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 will you will enjoy this child. Rosie is recovering from the experience. Josh is being a very good father, and uh, in their house they have a, a cat who's been demoted. Okay, the cat used to like rule the roost. Now, now now she's been demoted because because the prince has entered uh, the household. So. Um, thanks be to God for that. One of the things that uh, we've been thinking about is uh, is names. Okay, so like when when you have a baby, you name the baby, right? And parents talk about uh, about how they're going to name the child, and they're they're working. You know, they read those baby name books. Uh, and this child's name, his middle name, is a family name. Okay, so Adamson is your your maiden name right it's it's the grandmother's maiden name and and josh's middle name is also adamson so that one was easy sebastian i think they picked because it works both in english and in german and they imagine themselves uh living uh in europe at some point in their lives and they wanted to make sure they had a name that would work for everybody the next kind of name though is what what do you call the grandparents and there's been some negotiating going on about this. Now, I think the Bruces have it figured out. I think they've, they've, they've figured out what, you're going, what you know, the, the Bruce grandparents are going to be called. What, what is it? My mom and, and Rick the Bruce? Pop-pop. My mom and pop-pop. I don't know what you called your, your grandparents. I didn't really know my, my grandfather. My grandmother, we called Granny. Uh, we used to call her Granny Coon, actually. Uh, after from the Beverly Hillbillies, she she was an English lady, and it was a way we kept her humble by calling her Granny Coon, and and it, it was a very endearing name. I have, you know, I've been toying with the idea of being called Grumpy, but the parents are not so amused by the idea. Okay, I think they need to lighten up. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see what the child calls me. Next year, he's going to call me Dr. Morrison, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that too.
So this is the second Sunday of Advent, and you know that Advent is this season of preparation. It's a season of anticipation. The word Advent simply means arrival or appearance. The first Advent was the arrival of Jesus the Messiah that happened on the first Christmas day there in Bethlehem. And the the prophets had foretold the first advent. That's how the shepherds and the wise men were able to recognize the young Messiah. He wasn't born in a palace. Uh, Instead, he was born in a stable. And he wasn't born to power. He was born in humility. And he wasn't even born in Jerusalem, which would be the city that would be his capital city one day. Instead, he was born in Bethlehem, David's city, a small outlying village. Now, for a very long time, the church has celebrated Christmas. Once a year, we remember the birth of Jesus. Christmas is not about magic. Christmas is not about warm and fuzzy feelings. Christmas is the anniversary of an occasion when God supernaturally invaded the universe. God, who is not a human, became a human. God, who was outside of space and time, entered space and time. I don't know what that means or how that happened, but as Christians, we should not be content to allow something that is genuinely mysterious be replaced with something that is simply sappy. The incarnation of the second person of the Trinity is in no way equivalent to a snowman coming to life when a magic hat is placed on his head. The creator of the universe entering the world that he created. I mean, how does that happen? That's in no way equivalent to the nerdy reindeer with the funny nose becoming the leader of the herd. The endless inventiveness of pagan mythology is remarkable. Hollywood keeps coming up with wacky and lovable ideas that we oddly absorb and believe because, well, they're repeated so many times. The story of the first Christmas was foretold, but the way it ended up happening was different from what people had anticipated long ago. God established a special covenanted relationship with Abraham and with the descendants of Abraham. Why he chose Abraham, I don't know. He just did. God established this relationship and he made all kinds of promises to Abraham and to Abraham's kin that they would multiply, that they would be numerous beyond counting, that they would have a land of their own forever, that they would receive a law that would show them a godly, righteous way to live, that they would be a blessing to every other nation in the world. And then over the centuries, Through good times and through bad, God remarkably, supernaturally has watched over these people as a mother hen watches over her chicks. God has shielded them and protected them, even as he demanded that they walk in pathways of righteousness, pathways that have been described in his law. Now, God's law is not an oppression. God's law is liberty. Because when we follow God's law, we prosper. When we live the way God tells us to live, we are healthy, we are content, we are secure. The benefits of following God's law are like the benefits of following a Julia 
child's recipe. If you follow the recipe, it actually does turn out better. But there's something about human nature, there's something about, well, my nature that makes me inclined to do things my way rather than God's way. And doggone it, that keeps causing me trouble. Of course, it's insulting to God that I don't listen to his instructions or obey his recipes, but it's also the source of my problem. My life would be easy if I were not so rebellious, if I were not so inclined to go my own way, if I were not so hard-headed and hard-hearted. I know, because every time... I go my own way, I get into trouble, and then every once in a while I do things the right way, and wow, things are better. And even if life is hard, which it can be, even if life is hard, a life lived while we are keeping God's law is at least filled with peace of mind. If trouble happens to us, at least we know that we haven't been the cause of that trouble. A righteous life can have suffering, but a righteous life does not have guilt or regret. And you know, guilt and regret are harder to bear than the suffering itself. Now, while I'm aware of my own sin and while I'm aware that my own life at times, uh, in my own life at times, I have not walked in the paths that God has laid out for me, while I know that I have brought some troubles onto myself now and again, and I'm guessing your life is the same, there are times when we suffer not because of what we've done, but because of the sins of other people. All of our sins cause us trouble, but not all of our trouble is the result of our sins. Sometimes our conscience is clear. Sometimes we know that we've done the right thing and there are other people, the sins of other people, that have caused us to suffer. All of the terrible suffering that the people in the Ukraine are facing right now, that's not a result of their sin. That's the result of the sin of the invader. Sometimes we suffer because of our own sin, but sometimes we suffer because of the sins of others. The hard truth is is that the whole world has a sin problem. Things are just not the way that they're supposed to be. And so God, who so loved the world, sent his one and only son into the world to solve our sin problem. The first sin problem that I should worry about, and unfortunately this is not the one that we usually worry about, but the first sin problem that I should worry about is my own sin. Normally, usually, When we have trouble, what we do is we notice the sins of other people. Those people who are causing me trouble. And yes, other people can cause me trouble. Other people do sin. Sometimes they sin against us. But the sin that we have control over is only our sin. Okay, The sin problem that we can fix is our sin problem. And when we take care of our problem, then we discover that the problems of other people, well, they're less troublesome. So let me talk a little bit about how we solve our sin problem. 
Sin, of course, is when we know what God wants us to do, but we don't do it. Sin is whenever we know God's recipe for our lives, but we do things in some kind of different way, the problem, the solution to our sin problem is to decide to stop doing that and to do it God's way. The first step in solving our problem is deciding to stop doing what we're doing wrong and to start doing what God has told us to do in the first place. We call that step repentance. I know that's a church word. I know that it comes with all kinds of baggage. Maybe you would prefer the words that appear in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the word for repentance is shuv, which means to turn around. If you're heading west, you turn around and you go east. That's shuv. In the New Testament, the word is metanoia. That's a little fancier. Metanoia means to change your mind. You're thinking about things in this way, and then you stop and you turn it around and you think about them that way. That's repentance. John the baptizer, who was Jesus' cousin, by the way, John the baptizer was a powerful Jewish prophet. He was not a Christian. He was a Jewish prophet, and he preached repentance. Shuv, metanoia. You're heading this way. Stop. Turn around. Go the other way. You think you're going the right way. Stop. Change your mind and think about it in a new way. A lot of people went out into the wilderness to hear John the baptizer preach. He was living in the wilderness there by the Jordan River. People would come from Jerusalem. They'd come from Judea. They would come from the surrounding area. And he was out there preaching in a God-forsaken place. And he was preaching actually the same stuff that the Old Testament prophets had already been preaching. And if you know your Old Testament prophets, well, you need to know your Old Testament prophets. Mostly what the Old Testament prophets do is remind the people of what the law of God is. Okay, Most of the prophets are, here's what you're doing, here's what God's law says, straighten up. Okay, John does the same thing. John doesn't preach anything new. He's just preaching the law of God. He's just preaching the way of righteousness that God gave these people a long time ago, God's recipe for a successful righteous life. John says to them, oh, here's God's recipe. Here's the way that God wants us to to live. And of course, the people who are going out to hear John preach, they're God's people. They're Jews. They've been raised with the law. They already know this stuff. They've heard it in Sunday school class since they were children. They were raised hearing the Torah. So they know God's law and they know God's prophet. God's prophets. John wasn't saying anything new to them. He was just reminding them. And if you've been in church long enough, you'll discover that most preaching is just reminding us of stuff that we already know. Tell the truth. Stop stealing. Be generous. Honor the marriage bed. Don't abuse people who are weaker than you. You all already know those things. You've heard the law of God 10,000 times. There's nothing new in that. It's all stuff that we've heard since we were children. And so John the baptizer is out there in the wilderness preaching to people. And many people come 
came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They've gone out there. They've heard him preach. He's reminded them of what the law has said. The law says to do this. law says to do that. law says to do this. And they realize what they already knew. Namely, you know what? I knew that when I was growing up and I haven't been living that way. I know what the right way to live is. And you know, I'm not doing it. And under the power of the Holy Spirit, they were convicted of their sins and they confessed their sins there and they were then baptized in the river. Now you have to keep in mind that this baptism that John is doing, this is not a Christian baptism. The church is, there is no church yet. This is before the church. He's the last of the Jewish prophets He's baptizing them, and it's actually a very humiliating thing that he's doing for them because if you had been born a pagan, if you had been born a Gentile, if you had been born outside of the people of Israel and you wanted to convert, if a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, what they would have to do is they would have to take a dunk in what's called living water or flowing water. It was a sign of conversion. There was nothing magical about it. It was a sign. And for Jews to go out into the wilderness, for Jews to leave Jerusalem and go out into the wilderness and hear this, this guy preaching and to confess their sins and to dunk into the flowing water of the Jordan River, that was the equivalent of saying, you know what? I've been living like a Gentile. I call myself a Jew, but you know what? I'm really a pagan. I've been living like someone who's not part of the people of God, and now I want to join the people of God. Please, let me join the people of God. It was an act of conversion of people who were already born into the covenant community. In some ways, for those of us who've been raised in the church, we need this kind of conversion. Okay? You may have been raised in the church and heard these Sunday school lessons since day one, and you've drunk this stuff in, and you know it, and you believe it in some sort of sense, but you're living, you're living like a person in the world. Well, maybe you need to become a Christian. Jesus later would make this kind of baptism a sign of entrance into the church. Baptism is our sacrament of entrance into the church. It's a sign of our conversion. Christian baptism for a believer is an act of repentance. It's a way of showing that we want to stop living this way and we want to start living that way. So there's John the baptizer out there in the wilderness. The Old Testament prophets had foreseen him. They knew that there, he would come before the Messiah, that he would be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. John the baptizer is not the Messiah. John the baptizer is the warm-up act. John the baptizer is the one who's preparing the way for his cousin Jesus. Now we talk about John the baptizer during the Advent season because Advent is a season of preparation. This is a time of getting ready. It's a time of anticipation. At home, we're getting our houses ready for Christmas. Some of you have started buying your Christmas presents. During Advent, we also start thinking about the second coming. We think about the second Advent, when Christ will return in power and in glory to judge the world. But I think that what we should be thinking above all else is preparing ourselves to receive Christ as our Lord and Savior. 
What we should be thinking about is how do I get ready to take Christ into my life and let him rule my life. John was a prophet who prepared the way for the people to receive the Messiah. And as it turns out, the first step in preparing to receive the Messiah is the step of repentance. Shuv, metanoia. Repentance is the preparatory step for conversion, but let me be very clear that repentance is not enough by itself. A lot of people think that, you know, I feel, I, you know, I, I feel sorry for my sins. I really regret my sins. Well, that's a good thing. I'm happy about that, but it's not enough. Repentance is not the same as salvation. It's a first step. It's a necessary step. But the people who confessed their sins and were baptized by John out in the wilderness were not saved by that baptism. That would take another step. There are a lot of people who regret their sins who are unsaved. John was preparing the way. The first step is the repentance. It's a very helpful step. It's a required step. Now, Advent runs for four weeks, and I could be mean and tell you that you have to come back next week to find out what the other steps are. But I'm not going to do that because today is the day of salvation, according to the Bible, and we never know if we're going to get another Sunday. So let me give you the rest of the gospel, the gospel that... John was preparing the way for. If I want to be saved, step one is, is that I have to recognize that I've sinned. I need to admit that. I need to own that. I need to not whitewash it or explain it away. Step one is for me to stop making excuses about what I've done. Oh, yes, Lord, I have sinned, but there were extenuating circumstances. That's not repentance. I can't bring my lawyer with me when I am repenting. I just have to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about who I am and how I've been living and how I've been living. If I want to be saved, I must confess my sins to God and sincerely turn, shuv, metanoia from that path and turn into the path that God has already laid out for us. You know what that path is. You've already heard about it. You've heard about it since you were a kid. Step one is repentance. John the baptizer prepared the way for the Messiah by preaching the step of repentance, but then Jesus brings us to the next step. We read in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, this is at verse 14 and 15. After John the baptizer was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent, step one, and believe the good news, step two. After we repent, we also need to believe. Now the good news of the gospel is this, 
If we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that his death on the cross was an atonement, a payment for the sins of those who repent, then we will not be punished for our sins, but instead will receive eternal life. To have saving faith in Jesus means not only that you believe the facts about who Jesus was and what he did, but that you also believe that the death of Jesus paid for your sins. It is by faith in Jesus Christ that uh, it is by faith in Jesus Christ that what Jesus accomplished on the cross is applied to me. You see, it's possible for a person to believe that Jesus is the Savior. It's possible to believe that Jesus' death was a sacrifice, not for his sins, but for the sins of the church. It's possible to believe that, but not have confidence that that applies to me. There are people in that category, people who just can't believe that God loves them that much, people who think that what they've done has been so terrible that God could never forgive them. Those people don't yet have a saving faith. Maybe they've repented of their sins. Maybe they regret what they've done and have tried to head into a new direction. Maybe they believe that Jesus did save some people, but they can't quite bring themselves to believe that he did it for them. Let me tell you who will be saved. Let me tell you who Jesus is willing to save. Anyone. Jesus will save anyone who repents and calls on his name. The Bible says, whosoever will may come. That means anyone. Anyone who wants to be saved can be saved. Jesus doesn't turn anyone away. Jesus doesn't check your resumes or your references to decide whether or not you deserve to be saved. Jesus died because he loves us. Jesus offers us free and total salvation because he loves us. We don't qualify for that salvation. We don't earn that salvation. Saved people are not better than unsaved people. Saved people are people who have repented of their sins and who have believed the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Do we have enough? Oh, we have enough time. I'm going to talk about step three and step four. Okay, we got time. I'm still not used to this schedule, this, this change morning schedule. It's, it's thrown me off. Let me talk about step three. After we have repented, step one, after we have believed that Jesus' death atones for our sins, step two, then we are saved. That's what it means to be born again. But you know what? That's just the beginning. Because that salvation was not just designed to get you to heaven. That salvation was designed to produce some fruit. And when we turn from our old way, when we have believed in the gospel, then we receive the Holy Spirit and he takes up residence in us. And, you know, something changes. The old passes away. Behold, all has become new. The old man begins to die. The new man is born. We begin to produce fruit that's in keeping with the repentance. We repent of our lying and of our stealing and of our selfishness and we receive forgiveness for our sins. But then over time, we begin to sin less. 
We give up the stealing. We are more often selfless than selfish. That process, of course, doesn't happen all at once. It is a lifelong process. It won't be complete until we see Jesus. But it should give us hope with each passing week. We call that process sanctification. That's step number three. And then there's step number four. That's the one that we're looking forward to. It's called glorification. When Jesus returns... If we are dead, we'll be resurrected and given glorified bodies. If we're alive, in the twinkling of an eye, our bodies will be transformed. We'll become like Jesus. And in that moment, we're going to become 100% sinless. Okay? Jesus will return in clouds of glory. The whole world is going to see him. The dead in Christ will rise. Those who are, already, who are still present on the earth will be transformed in that moment. And the salvation will be completed. Okay, that's the goal. Right? Transform bodies, we become sinless, we're no longer under slavery to sin and to death, and that's what we're heading for. And then that begins, of course, the eternity that we spend with God, in that moment of glorification. Now here's the, the thing, is, is that God in his mercy gives us little uh, foretastes of that day. One of them is right here. Okay, So you know that life in New Jerusalem is going to be a feast, where there's going to be the best of meats and the finest of wines, we're told. Okay, We're going to be feasting in the kingdom of God. We're going to be eating very well, and we're not going to be getting fat, and I believe so, in the kingdom of God. All right, We're going to have these perfect bodies, bodies that don't die, bodies that don't get sick. We're not going to be sinning against each other. Okay? We gather around this table as just like a little, like a little hint, a little picture of what it's going to be like when we're all. We call this communion because it's a time when we get together, when 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 we're linked to one another. We're communing with God, but we're communing with one another. And the church all over the world is taking communion this morning, as they do every Sunday morning, and somehow uh, mystically we're linked to one another. Okay, we're going to enjoy that fellowship in our glorified state in heaven. Our salvation will be complete, and we get little foretastes of it in this life. Well, I haven't told you anything new this morning. It's a rerun sermon, okay? You've already heard this before. But let me ask you this. Where are you in that process in that four-step process none of us have been glorified okay i mean we know some people who've been glorified some of the saints who've died and gone ahead of us they're they're fully in glory um but that's none of us but where are you along that path have you repented of your sins The, the ability to repent of your sins is something that's given to you by the Holy Spirit. So the, the, the Word of God, the law of God, shows you the standard, and then the Holy Spirit allows you to check your own life against the standard and to say, oh, that, I, I'm doing it the wrong way. Okay? Have, have you gone past there? Not everybody has, by the way. Those of you who have repented... Those of you who have recognized your sin and regretted them and resolved to change course, have you also believed that the death of Jesus pays for your sin? Okay. By faith in Jesus Christ, 
our record is clean. Okay, those of you who've been born again, I mean, you guys are wicked sinners, but in the eyes of God, you're perfectly righteous. Like, you guys have done some crazy stuff. But it's all forgiven. It's wiped away. The record, the, the record is clean. Those of you who've been born again. So those are, that's those who've, who've repented and those who have believed. So those of you who have been born again, how's your sanctification going? You're living more like Christ this month than you were last month? You're living more fully in obedience? One of the ways that you can check this is how your relationships are going. How are things at home? What's going on at work? Okay. Struggles in life often re, uh, surface shortcomings in our own, in our own heart. All, right. All of us uh, are being called by God. God wants us. He wants us to be in a relationship with him. He has designed us to live with him in glory forever. And I invite you to take hold of that. Let us pray. Father God, we love you and we adore you. We thank you for sending us Jesus. Thank you for John the Baptizer, for preaching out there in the wilderness, for his message uh, to come to repentance. Lord, I pray that you would uh, allow us uh, to come to repentance ourselves. I pray that you would give us the faith that we need uh, to believe. I pray that you would give us the ability to open up our hearts and to prepare room in our hearts to receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Lord, may we get past the stage of just believing stuff about Jesus. May we let him rule in our lives. And we ask that you make that a reality in our lives. And we do pray this in Jesus' name.